It's wonderful to actually sit and listen to the Bible just be read. Such a great gift. So those are the words of God that we believe. And so we're going to stop and pray and then speak about that. Father, we thank you that you uh, promised to show up in a unique way. So we recognise that we can't manufacture that. We ask, Lord, that you would speak in a way that is so real that's undeniable to us, those of us who know you and don't know you and wonder if you exist. And we thank you that these reflect your heart for the whole world and those people who are yours. So we ask that you'd speak to us as we gather in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is the third week of our short series on the church, what the church is about. You've got the picture up there of all these people. And so the first week we said that the church is a home for God and a home for people. And that the people in the church, because of God, they have a bond that transcends normal barriers, transcends barriers of ethnicity and age and gender and social status and education. So that there's a bond between people who are Christians that's actually unique, where you're, it said you're cemented together, then God dwells among you. And then last week we talked about what James said, the reality that the church is not just called to have a great time together, but actually to be a part of what he's doing in passing our faith on to the next generation. And as soon as you hear that idea, this is passing the faith on to the next generation, most of us, we said last week, instinctively think, well, this is a talk for parents, you know, and if I'm single or, or older or I don't have kids, we think, well, I'll tune out. But the Bible doesn't understand the raising, caring, nurturing, educating kids in that way. It's like the idea that a village raises a kid, the children are born into a community. And so in this unusual letter, you have this childless single man, Paul, addressing Timothy, verse 2 of the whole book, to Timothy, my dear son, in our chapter, the first verse, and then you then, my son. He does that twice in the first letter of Timothy. That's family language, isn't it? That's close. And there's this reality, although we know parents have a primary responsibility for kids, when you are a part of investing in the, the next generation's life, whatever age that person is, you carry a level of responsibility that's, that's here spoken of as like God-given, where you speak to people in family terms, where you know them in that way. And this, this book, this letter, is not actually just written to this man, Timothy. It's clearly, you know, it's addressed to everyone. Paul in the first verse says, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, you know, if I was writing a letter to my son, I don't say, oh, it's Martin Kennedy, one of the pastors of Campbelltown City Baptist Church. My son, you don't know that, Dad. You don't need to say that. So this is a letter to all of God's people and through the lens of this man, Timothy. So it's the last words we know of Paul. He's writing from harsh prison conditions and it's to his, his young protege, Timothy. This is like 2 Corinthians, one of his most personal letters. He's very reflective here. He's pushing 70 years. He's served God for 40. And listen to the type of things he's saying. The whole book is about passing on what's been trusted to us, the next generation. Verse 14 of chapter 3, this is sort of the tone of the whole letter. But as for you, continually what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. So he's saying, Timothy, I want you to take what you know that you know that you know and pass that on to the next generation. And so as a church, we're going to start by thinking, recognising 
The only reason we actually in history stand here together as a church is because people like Paul passed on what had been entrusted to him to someone like Timothy, who then passed that on to someone else. Paul, in the second verse here, Paul has a four generation. He's thinking four generations out. He says, take what's been given to you from me, pass it on to someone else who's going to pass it on to the next person. So that's what this is actually about. But he gives him three very strong things that this young man Timothy needs to know. His calling, how hard that is, and how he can persevere in it. Today is really about how we as a church can actually keep going at this thing we've been called to do, entrusted with. And he starts by giving us a calling. So I just want to give you up front two verses. It's the whole Christian life. Verse 1, who you are. Verse 2, what we're called to do. That's verse 1. So let's look here at chapter chapter 2, verse 1. So then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses in trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. But there's the two things. And, and I want to say a statement up front for anyone who's just exploring Christianity at the moment, who, who are thinking this through. I want to encourage a question to think about. How do, you, how do you think through, how do you account for the growth of the Christian church? This religious phenomenon that started in the back corner of the world and now is a world movement. It's a really good thing for all of you, but especially those exploring Christianity, to think about how do we account for that? And there's probably another question that begs here is how do we get involved in what God's doing in the world? So, so those two questions, I want you to consider those as you listen and think. But verses 1 and 2 give us who we are and then what we're called to do. Who we are, verse 1, it says, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. This is a way of saying be a follower of Christ. He's going to explain what that means in this sentence, but... Some language we sometimes use is be a disciple, same thing, be a follower of Christ. And verse 2, he says, pass on what you've learned, what you know of that. So basically, help others follow Jesus. So be a follower and then help others follow. Or be a disciple, then help others be disciples. Does that make sense? It's pretty awesome. It's just very simple. And this is at the core of Christianity. Verse 1 What's it mean to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus? Essential. He says here, a beautiful version says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened in the grace. That's the foundation of what we talk about here. What's that all about, the grace of this Christ Jesus man? Well, let's flip back, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1. We talked about this last week. This is a powerful summary of the grace of God. He says, He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's a very powerful statement. And he uses, we said last week, four pairs of word. You've been saved and called to live a holy life. And then he says, not because, but because. Not because of anything you've done, but because of God's purpose and grace. Then he says, you've been given grace and it's been revealed. It's just amazing. He said, you've been given grace from before the beginning of time. 
He says, before the beginning of time, God has always been motivated towards you in love. And then grace was revealed. You saw that when Jesus turned up in human history. He destroyed death and brought life. And so Paul has described the gospel completely in terms of the action of God. It's a powerful statement. And and now he says, and this is a command, he says, be strengthened by that. He says, actually, I want that not to be something you know or you, you say you believe in, but be strengthened in it. That you now are animated. You find energy, fulfillment and purpose through that statement. How does that happen? And good to stop and think, maybe we said something about this last week, but when you step over the line of faith to believe that, that we, what we just read, you're actually believing that God is good, that he's for you, that he sees you and that you matter to him. And it's not just a statement about a change in belief about God. It has a, a significant change in belief about yourself to make a step of faith. You're actually saying at the same time, look, I don't care what anyone says. I don't even care what I say about myself or what the evidence of my past says about me. God says he created me in his image and he loves me and he doesn't just want to say it. He's going to show it. And he entered human history and died so I can live. So I'm stepping into the belief of that. Does that make sense? That's actually what you have to start to think about is happening when you start to find strength in this. It's not incidental that when Jesus was asked in the Gospels, what's the greatest commandment? That he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. You were never intended to be out of alignment with God. The Bible says we're created to be in in sync with him. But when we're not, we're removed from our greatest source of power. The, The idea of grace here, is not in this sentence primarily about forgiveness, although we just read it is. But he's saying, I want you to be strengthened by that forgiveness. It's the idea that grace can become a power in your life. It actually enables you to do this thing called being a follower of Christ, to be a Christian, that you get a power from this thing. This is very important to think about and a great way to to understand your life. I mean, let me say, I love these things, right? I love my mobile phone. I'm so glad I have them and laptops. But I have to always remind myself, I have to keep plugging it in because it just keeps running out too quick. And the charges, everyone steals charges. I don't know what happens in the houses, but they go missing very quick. And and your phone's sitting there next to the charger, but someone else has plugged it into their one, (laughs) thinking, you don't need any more, you know. And if I think that this, see, this doesn't create energy, it consumes it. And if I think that it, it does create it, I'll be even less in contact with people that I already struggle to be. It's actually central what it means to be a Christian. So Psalm 84 verse 5, listen to this, says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, sorry, in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. It says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. There's a relationship here. The moment your heart's set on pilgrimage, or if you like, on the intention God has for you, which is to pass this on, you actually begin to live in his strength. You see, the strength of God doesn't come without his intention for your life. Some of you get very frustrated. Say, God, I want you to strengthen me for life, and, but you want him to strengthen me for your purpose and, and my intention, not his intention. Does that make sense? They actually go together. His intention for you and his strength that empowers you. Listen to 
the same Psalm 84 verse 7 now. It says, and they go from strength to strength. This actually is how the Bible sometimes describes real life. See, sometimes you would think you get strength from God and you're done. Like you only need one breath of oxygen, that's all I need. No, no, you need it all the time. It's the same with God. He didn't design you like that. You, you just know no matter how strong you, you are, you're always going to get tired again, aren't you? No matter how strong a person ever becomes, they always get weak again. We've actually, as human beings, got to keep replenishing our strength. So the reality is the Bible's written in the context of real life. It's full of disappointment and crisis and challenge and conflict, and you go from crisis to conflict, from crisis, and that's why you have to go from strength to strength to strength because God's going to give you strength for the next challenge that's in front of you, for what's next in your life. And it's about harnessing our strengths. Let's stop and think. That I did some research on, because um, I had the Super Bowl recently and I'm, I didn't get to watch it, so I, I looked at the American football and one of the greatest running backs, they say, was a man called Jim Brown. And what they say about him is that he, he was just one of the greatest players ever. And one of the things that was unique, so he's a, a monster of a man, would just run, take four or five to get him, tackle him. And... Um, he had, he had two things that were distinct. One was every time he's tackled, he's, he'd lay still. He's the last person to move and he was the slowest back to the huddle and, and, and the slowest back to the liner. And, and he did this routinely every time he's tackled. He said one reason is I don't want anyone to know if I'm hurt <laughs> because whether I'm slow, whether I'm hurt or not, they can't work it out because I have the same look and the same pace. But he says the other reason I do it is to conserve energy. Because the moment the, the, the whistle blows, powers out and just blows him away. And the guys who were interviewed about him would say, we didn't know when this guy was ready to stop. When he'd taken enough, he'd just run another 50 hours and run through us again. The Christian life is very importantly about energy management far more than time management. Let me say something personal here. I, we know the reality of plenty of people who, who struggle with burnout, suffer breakdowns of various kinds. And, and, and for the first half, of at least up to 30 years old, I had three breakdowns, three burnouts. Two of them involved hospitalisation. And so there were serious life lessons for us as a couple. And, and one of the, the realities I understand for me that is true, and I would suggest for burnout in general, is, is that... It never happens because of hard work or working too hard. In my understanding, it's always a misappropriation of my energy. I'm giving myself to the wrong things. Does that make sense? And so time management, of course that's important, but energy management to me sits above. Because, see, we've all got the same amount of minutes, but not the same amount of energy. And if you, you choose to address your life that way, you'll actually be able to address every season, the seasons you have less, seasons you have more. Because the choice is how much energy am I going to give to this minute? That's really the choice we're, we're all sitting with. And so this is, there's a powerful thing here. That there's One of the big critiques of Scripture is when you're young, you have a stack of energy and not much wisdom. <laughs> and the question is, are you going to use any of that energy for, for things later that you'll regret or be embarrassed by? Or, not so much that you do something wrong, but will you do anything right with your energy? Scriptures are all going to say, with all that energy you've got, have the same intention with your life. 
not just a whole bunch of energy, but intention. And so verse 2 is essentially about the intention of God. Listen to this last psalm on this idea of, of being strengthened, the command to find strength from that grace. Psalm 73, uh, verse 26 says, My mind and body may become weak, and by the way, they will, but God is my strength, he's mine forevermore. That's the reality of the Christian life summed up right there. Because God doesn't give, even though grace in this verse, verse 1, is is spoken of to be strengthened by more as a power, a strengthening than, than just forgiveness as it is, You've got to understand that God doesn't just give us this, this pack of pills that you go pop one when you need some power. It's implicit in the language. Be strengthened in the grace that is in, and then we have the name of a person, Christ Jesus. The reality is the goodness of God is that he's self-giving. He gives you himself. And he says, he's mine forever in that psalm. When you say, Jesus, I give you my life. He says, not only have I already done it, I'm going to do it again and give you myself forever. It's one of the greatest transactions you can ever make. If you're considering saying to Jesus, I give you my life, know that 2,000 years ago he gave his life for you and he's waiting for you to give it to him. And it's the greatest transaction that I give him my sinfulness and brokenness and he gives me life and forgiveness and hope that I never lose. So I hope that's an encouragement to understand what it might mean to think about being strengthened by the graces in him. Now, we said before that intention is central to this. And this is part of God's intention. Not just we all go, we're just being strengthened, but what for? Verse 2 is directly related to verse 1. Verse 2 says, pass it on in shorthand. Pass it on to people who can pass it on. And so before we talk about what that looks like, the nature of that, the essence is still, we've got to sit with this. This is about God's intention for you. This is not a side option for people who've got the gift of this. Or This is, this is essential to being a Christian. It's essential to being what we said, a disciple. It's connected to everything in verse 1. You know, in creation... The story of creation in the scriptures, chapter 1 of Genesis, everything is created with intention. It's described as good and in Greek as beautiful and very beautiful. But human beings, of all the creatures created, are designed to live with the highest level of intention. Because we don't just get created with intention, but we have intention plus a will. You get to choose how you want to live. We can choose to live beneath God's intention for us, or in line with it. Because you never see, you never hear like a lion going, I know I'm king of the jungle, but I just don't know if I'm fulfilling my potential here. Um, <laughs> you never get a giraffe going, I just want to be a dancer. I've got the legs for it. You never hear that. But we have a phrase that we, we give to our species that we don't give to other species called inhumane. Because we can live beneath what we understand it means to be human. So I don't know if you did this with your kids, but often when our kids were little, um, we, we, to calm them down and get ready for bed, we sometimes sit down and watch the David Attenborough National Geographic thing, you know, awesome, you know, pictures of Alaska and birds and bears and whatever. And I remember one distinctly. I was sitting behind the kids. They're all calm and it's wonderful and oh, it's, it's a good soothing thing before we go to bed. And then... Um, 
Yeah, uh, because it was just before bed, and remember these gazelles going through a riverbed, and this massive crocodile, without warning, just comes up, snaps it in half, and just sucks it into the river. And I've both of them jolted it. <laughs> what the heck was that? <laughs> okay, kids, let's go to bed. <laughs> that's like, that's nightmare material, right? But we didn't go, kids, by the way, that is non-crocodile. That's not what they do. That's not... We'll take you to the zoo next week. We'll show you what they really do. No, no, we don't say that. But, you know, so every, I think, counsellor and social worker would agree with this list, that the human soul was never intended to live in environments of racism and, and jealousy and envy and, and, and abuse and violence. That when you live in that environment, you actually can become inhumane, be dehumanised. You know that's true, don't you? And so that's why it's so important to connect. This is an essential part of God's intentional as for a human being. These words have played big in my life. I'll read from Jeremiah 20 verse 9. He hit a wall. He was a prophet for God and he felt like God had abandoned him but then stopped and recognised that actually, no, God's doing something within him that he must respond to. Listen to this. He said, But if I say I will not mention God or speak any longer in his name, his word is in my heart like a burning fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I remember the day I gave my life to Christ, the middle of the night standing on our street. I basically said, I've got to give you my life. I said, I can't do this anymore on my own. I know I do not deserve you and I desperately need you. I said, Jesus, I'll give you my life. And I can tell you that in knowing him, God has done a thing where there's, I would describe it as a fire in my heart as well, in my bones. It's like something I can't hold in, like there's a hope and a love and a life that I want people to know. And God says, this is essential with how we've been created. So when I was so, so at the end of the year, I, at the, that was when I was eighteen. So all my friends, eighteenth and twenty-first, when we hung out and stuff, when we chat, it was instinctive for me to say, "Hey guys, something's changing in me. I've given my life to Jesus. This is actually a real thing." That year, I stepped into Beach Mission, other work, and I, I've got to tell you, you can't see this as a peripheral thing. Paul said, "Whether you got the gift of it or not, do the work of evangelism. Pass it on." Does that make sense? It's a central thing. So we want to talk now briefly about what it looks like. So that's the calling in those two verses, twofold. Be a follower of Christ and help others follow Christ. But the the next few verses tell us what that looks like to pass it on. So verse 2, it says, And these things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who pass it on. That's a, that's a character word. How do you know someone's reliable? You've got to spend time with them. And you've got to pass things on, things that you know. There's content to pass on as well. And so a good way to stop and think about what's it look like to pass on is just reflect on how Jesus made disciples. He spent time consistently investing in these frail, fragile men known as disciples. And he, and he invested the words of God and his life into them, into men, people, women. Because his mission was not to, to, to run some spectacular ministry program 
that would attract hundreds of people but just collapse when he leaves in three years. Because his mission was to make disciples of all types of people, his method was to sow his life and the words of God into individuals. So that means he spent time with people. So he'd walk with them. He'd talk with them. They would journey together and cook together and eat together. They'd, they'd camp out in different places together. He, he would encourage them and teach them, equip them and correct them. They'd laugh together and cry together. He'd teach them about the kingdom of God and he'd model what it looks like to live this life we're created to live. And then Paul, the man who wrote this letter, says, follow me as I follow Christ. <laughs> Imitate my life, the patterns of my life. They're going to show you the patterns of Christ's life. So that may help us think about what it might look like. It means spending time with people. Like we said on week one, you can't look at the the concept of the church from the Bible and equate it with an occasional attendance at a service. It's something more profound. I think we'd all agree. Here's the next thing you've got to notice about this, which is confronting. We'll be very quick with this. But the reality is those two verses are bookmarked by struggle and suffering. And the reality is it is hard work, as we mentioned before. There's no way the three images he gives us here of a soldier and an athlete and a farmer that you can conceive as a Christian life as not doing anything. What they all have in common is sacrifice for something bigger than themselves. Um, And by the way, it's not just a Christian thing, it's a human thing. If you read Steve Jobs' biography when they were building that first Apple Mac computer in his garage, they sacrificed for something bigger than themselves. The biographer says they would endure terrible work conditions, work hours, an often irritable and unsatisfied boss, all because they were creating something that would outlive them. And the biographer said they all saw this as their magical high point of their lives. Does that make sense? The intention God created us for as a church is to invest in something beyond you, and it's actually going to require suffering. Paul says, um, his famous line at the end, I have fought the good fight. That word is the word literally for agony, a wrestling match or a struggle. You know, in the the British uh, Lake District, there's a street um, for bike riders that is so windy and steep that the, the road is literally called the struggle. <laughs> and, it's, and it's that bad, it's that steep, that if you don't struggle, you're actually going to slide down the incline. It's just too hard. So when we talk about the Christian life, it's a struggle. This is not in the general sense. This is not like everyone says, yeah, life's a struggle and then you die. It's, it's actually a unique thing. It's the idea of a, of a deliberate struggle. You're choosing to step into a deliberate choice that most people shy away from, yet call Jesus their Lord. The truth is, this is what it should look like. So I'm going to read just, or we'll look at the first image he gets very briefly of a soldier. Verse 3. Join with me in suffering. There's that idea. Like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. So this is, this is someone who's, the, the, the idea is single-mindedness. But this is actually what the Christian life is intended to be about. You know, there's civilian affairs brought up here. So there's things that this person could do, they're permissible, but they're not profitable. 
And so the single-mindedness reality is this is what it looks like, that I, I head for the goal. This is what my life's about. And so he says, let's, as a soldier, fight a good fight, not a bad fight. Very important thing to point out because I think as modern people, the fight language sort of grinds on us a bit. But there's a difference. I want you to notice in what he's actually dealing with. If you go down to verse 14, he says, Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. How about verse 23? Don't have anything to do with the foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to his will. We said last week that character leads. And evil has power to lead. And neutral will not overcome evil. And so we're called to fight, but there's a good fight and a bad fight. I hope you noticed, he said, you need to fight. Your weapon is kindness. That's your weapon. But there's a confronting here, isn't there? See, he he said there's people, in other words, the people of God should not be tearing each other up, but building each other up. It ruins people's faith to be tearing people down within the church. And sometimes a soldier gets hit with friendly fire. That's what he's warning every Christian about. So when people are listening to those types of quarrelsome attitudes and arguments, it ruins their faith. They're ruined by it. And the word in Greek here for quarrelsome is catastrophe. It is actually a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe. When people who apparently love Christ, love Jesus, and should know better, but gather in little clusters in local churches and talk in such a way that is quarrelsome, unhelpful and ruinous. And, and, and it ruins other people's faith. It impinges on the next generation. Because human nature is we become like our forebears. And I'm sure you can all imagine churches and communities where the central things have somehow become the peripheral things. And the peripheral things somehow became the central things. So when he says fight a good fight, we know there's some people who love a fight, who'll fight at the drop of a hat, or who'll help us drop the hat. (laughs) We all know people like that. But he says, if you're going to fight, fine. Fight for the gospel. Fight for the scriptures that make you wise for salvation, but do it with kindness. That's your weapon. I love that. That's very helpful. The athlete image is the next one. And if the first image was about single-mindedness, this is about disciplined obedience. Uh, the, The next verse, verse 5, Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Very briefly, a couple of years ago, there was this UK man, United Kingdom man, running a marathon event. And um, he did an impressive time, two hours 51, finished in third place. And so, you know, you have the normal, usual interviewer. This is amazing. The guy said, yeah, I've been training hard. I've been, but my endurance held out. I'm just pumped about this, this third place. Yeah. But the other runners were very suspicious because no one remembered him overtaking them during the race, the leaders. And they did some investigations. And so they worked out that actually during the race, um, at the 20-mile mark, this guy got tired and he hopped on a bus. <laughs> 
and, and got out at a, at a park near the finish line, hopped through the reserve and burst out of the bushes and tops out in third, third place. So what do you reckon happens to him? He was stripped of his prize because he didn't compete according to the rules. I've got to tell you in the most passionate way here, friends, that in the, spiritually speaking, it is so much easier to cut corners in the spiritual life. It is so much easier at, li- at, at mile 20 to hop a bus and say, oh, I'm just going to take it this way for now. I know so many families that, that someone or has chosen that decision. The Christian life is like a marathon, not a sprint. And so maybe here's a question for you on this one. Is there anything in God's commands that you find difficult? By the way, there should be. (laughs) If this comes from God, there's no way it can be agreeing with me all the time. That's actually one of the evidences that it is from God and it's not culturally bound. The gospel actually challenges every single culture at some point, challenges our culture at things like the exclusivity of Jesus, there's only one way, or maybe sexual um, the idea of a one-man, one-woman relationship created for sex, that, that, that challenges our culture. If you go to, say, a, like a, a Muslim culture, they're not challenged by those issues at all. They're challenged by the idea of forgiving your enemy. So the reality is this will challenge me, but I'm asking you, are you ever challenged? Because here's the thing. If your life as a Christian is completely dominated by your comfort and ease and you being okay, there's a high chance you've at mile 20 hopped the bus. Last image is the image of farmer. And, and we probably get this a little bit more as Aussies. But he says in the next verse, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Think about this for a sec. Soldiers become heroes, athletes can be like famous, but what does a farmer get? <laughs> Diddly squat. Rain shower hind, he's got to get up and work. Doesn't he? It's daily plotting. Got to tend to that garden, got to tend to the field. And so often not to see any results because they don't happen in, in weeks and days, they happen in months and seasons. So if the image of farmer is anything, is it's about patience and hard work. And Paul's saying to Timothy, hey, if you want to see growth in your life and growth in other people's lives, it's going to look like patience and hard work. Every day, regardless of the conditions, the farmer has to get up and do his job in faith that he'll receive some type of crop out of this, some type of harvest. Have you seen that in your life, the question? Or have you seen that in the life of others? The thing is, the Christian life is not like launching a rocket. There we go, and there it's gone. It's far more like tending a garden. So those three things, Paul says, are the way it looks to endure, to sustain in this. But verse 7, very briefly to you, this is how we are enabled. He says first, Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into these things. Reflect on what I'm saying, because the Lord will give you insight. By the way, he's not saying, go hit the library, grab the books and study about those three images. No, no, no. In other words, he's saying, don't just read the Bible and go, cool, done. He's saying, 
sit there when you read the Bible and ponder and reflect, how might this apply to your life? Are there any areas in my life where I need more patience? Are there any areas in my life where maybe I need to be more obedient? Are there parts of my life that call out for a greater single-mindedness? He's calling for not more information but meditation. And the other thing here, there's an implicit promise that God will give you understanding and insight. The thing is, this reflects a verse in James that if you pray for wisdom, God will give generously to all without finding fault. It's a powerful promise in the scriptures that God wants to give you help and wisdom. You stop and think about it. There's two prayers God promises to give even though we don't deserve it. One is, the Bible says, if, if you could, um, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's the Bible's way of saying, even though you don't deserve a relationship with him or his forgiveness or him to overlook your sin, if you trust him and pray to him, he says, I'll embrace you, invite you to myself, and you become one of my children. The Bible's saying if you look in the mirror and honestly recognise your own faults, your own selfishness, you don't deserve a relationship with God and ask for it, you get it. The primary thing is if you realise you don't deserve it, you can have it. But if you think you don't need God's forgiveness, if you think he should be privileged to know you, you don't get one. So the first prayer God promised to answer you don't, you don't deserve is prayer for him taking your life, that you might belong to him. But the second prayer is for wisdom. And I want to encourage you, God's saying to think and then ask him for help. Think and ask him for help. Think and ask him for help. I can't apply this to you. It doesn't help you for me just to give you examples. You've actually got to realise God is saying, think about this. The second thing he says, which is foundational here, is remember Jesus Christ. Remember him. And he doesn't mean remember him generally. Remember him specifically. Remember how he joined in suffering so that you might have life. Listen to these things I wrote down. Remember Jesus, the ultimate single-minded soldier who says, I will always do what my father commands, who resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem knowing he was going to be executed on our behalf. Remember Jesus, the ultimate athlete who endured the cross, bore its shame, He finished the race for the joy set before him that other people might become into his family. Remember Jesus, he didn't just run the race. He drank the bitter cup. He drank right down to the dregs. Jesus, our patient and gracious farmer, who the night before he went to the cross, he was in a garden sweating drops of blood, basically into a garden. planning his own blood so that one day we might live because of him. And the last thing he says is, is think of the reward. Paul says, this is actually how, you know, if you would interview Paul at the end of his life and say, hey, was it worth it? <laughs> you know, before you did this Jesus thing, you were wealthy, you had status, power, successful, you were a respected member of your society. Was it worth it, Paul? If you're honestly to ask him, well, because, you know, you became homeless, lacked resources, physical suffering and, and actually heartache and suffering. So was it worth it? Well, at the end of the book, he actually answered it in chapter 4, verse 6 and following. He said, I have already been poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. And verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, I fought the good fight. 
I've finished the race and I've kept the faith. And that word for keep is, is an agricultural word for tending a garden. Paul saw himself as those three images. That's how he conceived his whole life. He's a soldier, he's an athlete, and he's a farmer. It's actually the only way to make sense of your life. And then he said, and I look forward to the crown that's to come. And sure, the crown is to enjoy God fully and forever. But in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he said, you, talking to people, you are my crown. You're my crown. He said his whole goal was so that others might share in the blessings of God. And that makes sense of everything. So, look, I hope you're both challenged and encouraged to somehow respond. I think it's impossible to to listen to that and go, well, I've got Jesus, so I'm good. (laughs) No, I think it's pretty obvious God's calling us to a life of intention and passing it on is hard. But the strength, he says, comes directly from him. And the amazing thing, he says, when you remember me, when you think about this, when you ask for wisdom, I'll not only give that, when you keep your eye on what your life's about, actually I'm going to give you the capacity to just do the next thing. To, to actually, He says it's going to involve inconvenience, things that are annoying sometimes. But I'm going to give you the capacity to actually use the power of that grace for the sake of others. So let's pray together that God might do that in our heart. Father God, we thank you for what this says. It's a very straight word from you about what we're about. God, I thank you that it's all, all in the idea that you give us what we don't deserve. And so I thank you that that actually is at the essence of the Christian story. That although we don't deserve a relationship with you, you promise if we ask for it, we seek that, we can have that. I thank you, God, that you didn't just say you love us and say that we matter, but you entered human history and died so we could live. And, Lord, that thing that you've entrusted to us, I ask that there would be a burden on our hearts for those who don't yet know your love, even if they know about you. Father, I thank you that um, you never call us to manipulate others, that, that we could never fabricate that. I thank you, God, that you, in your loving, gentle way and kindness, that you draw people to yourself. And so I thank you that even today you're helping people consider that. And those of us who know you, God, I ask that you'll help us care for people apart from us, knowing that our tendency is to just think about us. So, God, please move us to notice other people, today to say hello to other people and to step out of our comfort zone for the sake of others. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.